Good morning to you. Our Lord Jesus calls us to an overcoming faith. To the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.7, Jesus promised to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Now four verses later, to the church at Smyrna, Jesus promises, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Six verses later, to the church at Pergamum, our Lord promised to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Eleven verses after that, to the church at Thyatira, Jesus promises to him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. Six verses after that, to the church at Sardis, Jesus declares, he who overcomes, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Six verses after that, to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus tells us, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Nine verses later, to the church at Laodicea, Jesus tells us, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. So the question for the Christian is how do I cultivate an overcoming faith in an overwhelming world? In fact, that is our sermon title today, Cultivating an Overcoming Faith in an Overwhelming World. Now, we are not the first saints to stagger over this matter. 2,600 years ago, the prophet Habakkuk looked at the licentiousness among God's people and the seeming paralysis of God's law to stop it or curtail it. And so in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, the prophet prayed, Lord, why are you not doing something? And then God explained, that he was about to unleash the Babylonians, and they were going to execute judgment against the wayward Israelites. And this elicited a new prayer of despair from the prophet Habakkuk, and it is essentially this in Habakkuk chapter 2. God, how can this be your plan? Now, how does the man of God move from two chapters of confusion to one of the most powerful and beautiful prayers of conviction in all the Bible? In Habakkuk 3.17, the Bible famously says, because Habakkuk faithfully prays, though the fig tree does not bud, and there, there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. How do we move from being overcome by events to having an overcoming faith in an overwhelming world? If that is our question, Habakkuk chapter 3 is God's answer to that question. And so as you turn in the word of the Lord, let's first turn to the Lord of that word in prayer and ask you to bless our time together in this text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning asking that you would please inform us and transform us by your holy word, that you would take your Holy Spirit and make us a holy people, that you would help us to have an unswerving confidence in almighty God. 
that though the very pillars of our society might be shaken, that we would not be shaken because you remain unshaken. We pray, Lord Jesus, that come what may, we will be able to say that we rejoice in You. And that our feet are made stable in a world that is unstable. Just as the prophet Habakkuk does this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. The Word of God says in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigoinoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of You, and Your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, and rays flashed from His hands, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plagues followed at His heels, and He stood, and He measured the earth, and He looked and shook the nations. And then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low, His ways were everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The, the raging waters swept on, and the deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. And the sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury and threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed one. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced his own arrows with the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who have invaded us. Though the fig tree does not blossom, no fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and though there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places to the choir master with stringed 
instruments. The first principle we see from our passage today is this. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but let's get our arms around it. We cultivate an overcoming faith by routinely pausing. From whatever is pressing and investing in the saturation in the Bible and meditation on the God of the Bible. Let's say that again. We cultivate an overcoming faith by routinely pausing from whatever is pressing and instead investing in saturation in the Bible and meditation on the God of the Bible. You see, Habakkuk has a pressing problem. The Babylonians are about to invade. And God is going to give Israel over for a season of divinely sanctioned thumping until His people start repenting. And this reality weighed so heavily on Habakkuk's heart that verse 16 speaks of an involuntary physical reaction to the pressing problems. Verse 16, Habakkuk says, I hear about the Babylonians coming. I hear and my body trembles. He's shaking in his boots. My lips quiver. He, he stammers in his speech. Rottenness enters his bones. The strongest part of your frame, that which holds you up, has no power to support him. And my legs tremble beneath me. And yet by verse 19, that's true in verse 16, there is a real pressing problem. But by verse 19, Habakkuk becomes like the sure-footed deer who can navigate the rockiest of patches in the most uphill of life's surfaces. For the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He makes me tread on the high places. Now, there's not a lot of deer in Israel. They're referring to the, the wild animals that, that can seemingly climb the unclimbable. You can go to the fortress Masada and you see a sheer cliff face that the Romans couldn't overtake for many, many months, and you'll see some goat halfway up on it. How did he get there? He has feet like the, the deer. That's the inclusive word uh, for that kind of animal in the Hebrew. And he can tread on the untreadable places. How is this so? How can we have great peace in the midst of great trials? I want you to listen in again to verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of You. Habakkuk is reviewing Scripture. And Your work, O Lord, do I fear. As he goes to God's Word, he remembers God's work, and hearing brings about fearing. Not of the problem, but fear of the Lord. And that's the beginning of all wisdom, isn't it? Habakkuk pauses... He pauses from obsessively reviewing the grim reality of his present pressing circumstances. And he begins choosing to begin saturating himself in Scripture instead. For in the Word of God, we are brought back to reality. The reality that God is able to handle whatever makes us tremble. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of You. And Your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk begins fearing a new thing when he goes back to the right thing. 
In remembering God's power in the past, Habakkuk musters the faith to ask God to work right now in His present. He prays in the midst of the years that all this time took place from those, those Old Testament stories to today. In the midst of the years, revive Your work, Lord. In the midst of the years, make it known in my world today. Habakkuk is saying, do today what you have done before. In my life, Lord, be glorified. You are my hope. You are my help. And it is in you that I put my trust. And so Habakkuk had to choose to break the craziness cycle that instead of fixating on his problems, and he had insurmountable problems, instead of fixating on his problems, he instead deliberately decided to focus on God's ability to solve it. And I want you to notice the word that ends verse 3, that ends verse 9, and that ends verse 13. Listen carefully. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. Did you hear it? It's the word, Selah. Selah is a musical term of some opacity. And scholars believe it is kind of a musical pause in the midst of praise where we're called to stop and really ponder what we've just said. Now, Selah is a simple transliteration of the Hebrew word. It's just taking their letters and turning them into English letters. But a translation of the concept of Selah would perhaps be better rendered as, let us think about what was just said. Let us think. Uh, if it was the 90s, the great theologian Vanilla Ice would render Selah as stop, collaborate, and listen. Those of you old enough groaned along. Some of you clueless, well, you can Google it and it will never come out of your head for the rest of the day. Friends, we cultivate an overcoming faith by routinely pausing from whatever is pressing and investing in the saturation of the Bible. And as we saturate in the Bible, we begin to meditate on the God of the Bible. Do you understand that if you fixate on your challenges, your challenges will overwhelm you? But if we focus on Jesus, the Lord has a way of uplifting us. You've got to make that choice in the presence of pressing problems. As we saturate ourselves in Scripture, the Bible says we're transformed through the renewing of our mind by washing ourselves in the Word. As we saturate ourselves in Scripture, we remember what a mighty God we serve. That, that, that angels bow before Him. That heaven and earth ultimately adore Him. That He holds the wind in His hand. And He is the great I Am. That He is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. That He is Jehovah Shalom, my peace. That He is Jehovah Sidkenu, my righteousness. And so let us fix our eyes on Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we would not grow weary and lose heart, the rest of the verse tells us in Hebrews. And this brings us to our second point today. Our second point today is is not just saturation on Scripture and meditation on the God of Scripture. We must start pausing from our pressing problems and saturating in the Scriptures. But number two, we cultivate an overcoming faith in an overwhelming world by reviewing God's past faithfulness and His future promises. And that enables us to endure our present circumstances. We cultivate an overcoming faith by reviewing, by remembering God's past faithfulness and God's future promises, and that enables us to overcome our present circumstances. You're going to look in this prayer, this prayer of praise, this psalm, this song, this encouragement of Scripture. And when you're in verses 3 through 15, you're going to see sort of a bird's eye view of all that God can do. A review of what God did do to rescue his people through many centuries of holy history. Now, verses 3-5 through in this dive specifically remind us of our powerful Creator God who will repeatedly arise as a divine warrior God to decisively move to protect His people even when they were in mortal peril. Verse 3, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. So think about that. Think about that God came from Taman and Mount Paran. Okay, so let's think about that. Taman was the grandson of Esau. And it was the name of the Edomite city, which is to the south of the nation of Israel. And Mount Paran is in the Sinai Peninsula. And so both places are in reference to God's leading of His people out of bondage, out of slavery, and into the promised land. Reminding us of God's power in the Exodus. Now the second half of verse 3 reminds us of our powerful God who created everything from nothing in an instant. Verse 3 reminds us of when His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Now, clearly the earth is not full of His praise all the time today. So when was this point when, when His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise? And Job 38.7 tells us when that was. That was the situation at creation. Starting in Job 38.4, the Lord questions Job. Job had been questioning God, and God begins to question Job. And the sovereign Lord of heaven asks His simple but suffering servant this question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have so much understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And here it is, verse 7. When the morning stars, that is the angels, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for glory. You see, Habakkuk 3.3 is speaking about creation. Habakkuk 3.4 speaks about God's revealing and yet concealing power resident within the glory of God. For the glory of God is like the power of our sun. 
One writer put it this way, God's radiance is both emanating, but it's also concealing. It reveals His glory, and yet it also veils His power. It's easy to forget that the light and warmth that shower the earth from the sun's blessing comes from a ball of fire that could consume the globe in an instant if we came in contact too close to it. And in like manner, God's power is hidden in His glory. His revelation is restrained lest it would consume us to behold it. Hence verse 4, the Bible says, His brightness was like the light, and rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Verse 5 speaks of God using pestilence and plagues like soldiers in His army. Verse 5, before God went pestilence and plagues followed at His heel, the rear guard and the advanced guard. Now, sometimes God used pestilence to bring His people to repentance. Something would occur and then they would realize they could not continue in their ways and they would recalibrate to God. Sometimes God used plagues to achieve redemption, such as was the case in the Exodus when when a series of plagues wore down Pharaoh's resistance to Moses' insistence to let my people go. (laughs) Verses 6 and 7 go on to remind us of how much more powerful is our Creator who can rescue His people from whatever feeble rival we currently fear. He speaks to us about mountains. Because to us, mountains seemed fixed and eternal. They are, from our perspective, always there. But the reality is God measured those mountains and God set them in place with the same ease that a toddler does making mounds in his sandbox. Those mountains that seem utterly immovable can be scattered in an instant. You remember the great flood of Genesis. And God changed the world's topography violently. And so we see in Scripture that what we think is secure is only secure for as long as God says so. And that's helpful when the world is shaking around us, isn't it? Verse 6, God stood and He measured the earth. He looked and He shook the nations. By the way, it's the nations that's making Habakkuk afraid. And then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sunk low, and so His were the everlasting ways. The only thing truly everlasting in that section wasn't the mountains and the hills, it was God. That's what Habakkuk is rightly saying. Now friends, if mountains of granite can shift in an instant when our God demands it, how will the canvas tents of Kushan much less the curtains of Midian withstand it. In the days of the judges, Midianite marauders ruthlessly plundered God's people for seven consecutive annums. Every year they swept in and they took all of their wealth and all their food and and Israel was reduced to poverty. But what did in the mighty marauders of Midian was when God's people cried out to the God of heaven, And God said, enough. And He raised up Gideon. And then it was over for the people of Midian. 
Indeed, in Hebrew history, we see verse 7, that the tents of Cushan are in affliction. They came to afflict, but it came back upon them. And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Friends, God has sovereignty, not just over humanity, but over all of nature. And He displays His awesome power over creation in His many acts of wonderful, gracious redemption. God does this so frequently that a question might arise inevitably as we see in verse 8 in our prayer. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? It's a rhetorical question. God, you keep using rivers and seas. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, your chariot of salvation? What he's speaking of here is in displaying God's fearsome, awesome power over creation in His gracious acts of redemption, God halted the rapids of the mighty River Jordan despite it being at full flood stage. And He heaped its waters some 15 miles upriver at Adam so His people could cross when it was utterly impossible. When God's people were stuck between a Red Sea and a Pharaoh seeing red, what did God do? Well, God ordered the sea's waters to part when Moses raised his staff. And then those waters receded on command when Pharaoh's arrogant army decided they would chariot in. And the wheels came off their plan and the waters took over. And God's charioteers took out that superpower's chariot. Please notice this, God the Creator is also God the Warrior. We don't preach that enough anymore. We have forgotten there is a God in heaven. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow. You unholstered your weapon would be the western version of that. Calling forth for many arrows. He didn't just say, Barney Fife, get my bullet. He wanted... Excessive ammunition to those who failed to give Him contrition. This is why it is so important, my friends, that you and I individually make peace with the Prince of Peace while peace is on offer. He has offered peace through the shed blood of His one and only Son. He has done everything that you might have relationship with Himself. But when we reject that, when we say, I spurn the blood of the Son of God, Hebrews 10.26 is true for us. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the Gospel truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. No one will be able to say, I didn't know, and it's not so. No, you didn't listen. The heavens declare the glory of God. And instead of repenting, you laugh. I want you to remember the situation in Genesis 6 where at that point in human history, the Bible says pretty much all we did was iniquity. The Bible says just before God's great judgment of a great flood, verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on all the earth had become and that every inclination of his heart was always evil all the time. Genesis 6, 6, the Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth and His heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth and men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor 
and the eyes of the Lord. There is room in the safety of the ark if you will humbly say, God, save me. But there is wrath for those who reject their maker. Friends, understand the Bible tells us that great evil brings great judgment. And in fact, at one point, God washed the earth with floodwaters to cleanse His creation. What He did with water, He'll do again with fire. The God who did it promises it, and it will be so. Verse 9, recalling what He did. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on, and the deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. I love the, the poetry of verse 10 in the Hebrew. Uh, the ocean is personified when its tumultuous great waves are washing and cresting and bashing and smashing. They're giving praise to God. I lift my hands in praise, so says the waves. Then in verse 11, we're reminded that the things that we think are fixed and dependable are actually entirely contingent and totally malleable in the hands of God. What is more certain to you and I than sunrise? than the steady daily course in which the sun advances across the day's sky. Uh, you could pull out your iPhone and know where sunrise is going to be within a minute of tomorrow. And sunset. We are very solid on that point. Minute by minute, we know where it should be. We can literally set our watches by it, can't we? And yet when God's people got in an awful pickle in Scripture, when the Israelites made a foolhardy treaty with the Gibeonites, and in order to honor that treaty, they had to do an all-night, all-uphill forced march and then face a confederacy of combined enemies. What did God do? God stepped in and did something that has never been done before. Verse 11 recalls the events of Joshua chapter 10, where the sun and the moon stood still. Friends, our God is awesome and mighty. We never want to be on the receiving end of His holy fury. For our God is a consuming fire. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 12, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations. Violent words separating wheat from chaff. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, nowhere in Scripture is Israel ever called as anointed. This is probably speaking of the Messiah who comes from His people. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. That is the most powerful person they feared. That was the person God took out. Laying Him bare from thigh to neck where all of your exposed organs are that you need to protect in battle, they were unprotected. Selah. Think about it. Think about it. God met the Assyrian army, one of the world's great superpowers. The Assyrian army was known as one of the most brutal in ancient history. They used to go out of their way to sow torture and torment the, the outposts around major cities, uh, filleting people alive. They would be screaming and dying in torture. And, and, and that would make the people in the city cut off their, their, their king's heads, throw them over the wall and capitulate. They didn't have to fight many battles because they were so brutal. And so God, uh, here comes the Assyrian army coming on God's people. And God sent a single angel. And by sunrise, 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers lay slaughtered. Mighty, haughty King Nebuchadnezzar 
at the apex of his power, was reduced to eating grass like a bruised beet of the field in a fit of madness over his overwhelming arrogance. Later, he has a successor named Belshazzar. Belshazzar, in a drunken night, has a foolish gesture where he attempts to sup from the cup of the Lord's temple. Go bring me the stuff. Bring me the chalice from the Holy of Holies. God put a holy handwriting on his wall, didn't he? The fabled and seemingly impregnable walls of Babylon. Remember the great gardens of Babylon? And God said, I'm just going to write on those walls. I'm going to deface those walls. He didn't do it on the outside. He did it on the inside where they thought they were most secure. And this finger appeared. No hand, just a finger. And it scratched into the plaster in great big letters. Daniel 5 tells us, Meanie, meanie, tikal parson. And the Bible says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Meanie, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tickle, you have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and it will be given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, the Bible says, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received his kingdom at about 62 years old. God reigns supreme. And at times, He will remind us when we forget. God even employs irony and mockery to make His point so forthrightly. Verse 14, You pierced with His own arrow the heads of His warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. That is, there was a time when the enemies of God's people came, and they came to devour the the poor in secret. We're going to do this at night. We're going to win. And God said, I'm going to have your own warriors attack each other. And that happened in the Bible. This harkens back to places like Joshua chapter 7. When the Midianite marauders were thrown into confusion by a tiny company of 300 men. Do you remember? Those men, they didn't have you know, uh, advanced weaponry. <laughs> they had pottery. And inside it was a light, a torch. And in the middle of the night, 300 men from all sides up on the hills threw down the pottery. The lights came on. They heard the smashing. They saw the torches. They heard the trumpets. And the enemy thought, oh my goodness, we're surrounded on all sides. And 135,000 enemy soldiers were thrown into such confusion that they began killing each other. And that's how they went away. So what happens when you review God's past faithfulness in Scripture? and in your own life. Well, it emboldens us to remember God's future promises to us even in the midst of our present pressing circumstances. For after 13 verses of remembrances, in verses 3-15, through we come to Habakkuk's present pressing crisis. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. And yet, I will wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. You see, God had promised in Habakkuk chapter 2 that He would eventually judge the Babylonians for their iniquity. For as we see in chapter 2 and verse 2 of Habakkuk, the Bible says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision 
make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. There are promises from a God from whom it's impossible to lie. And sometimes we have to wait for it. But it will surely come. Now, A lot of things may come between those two. But it won't stop that one. Friends, I have read the last page of the Bible. And it's going to turn out okay. It's going to turn out all right. Glorious Jesus will be gloriously victorious. And all those who love Him will be with Him forever. That's the end of the story. And those who oppose will be in His throes forever and ever. As our Lord reminds us in John chapter 16 and verse 33, I've told you these things so that in Me, Jesus Christ, you might have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is the promise to the believer. Which brings us to the last aspect of cultivating an overcoming faith in an overwhelming world. It's a facet we tend to miss in all this because it's so subtle and we don't really pay attention to the little pieces in the beginning and ends of our passages. We rush right in to fig trees and all of that. Number three, point three that I want you to see today is that we cultivate an overcoming faith by devoting ourselves to prayer and praise with God's people. Now, I didn't orchestrate it like this, but it sure is handy that this is the Sunday God's people are back in God's house. Because it really well illustrates point three of Habakkuk 3 today. We cultivate an overcoming faith by devoting ourselves, not going to happen if we don't try, by devoting ourselves to prayer and praise with God's people. I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and then I want you to look at verse 19, the end of it. Verse 1, he says, A prayer, so he's devoting himself to prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to, and we have it in English as Shigoyanoth, it's probably pronounced more like Shigayon, uh, the Shigayon is another very obscure term, and it refers to some type of song. There is some debate on exactly what it's referring to within that. But it is no surprise that in verse 19, Habakkuk ends this song, this psalm, this prayer, with this, to the choir master. Now what does a choir master lead? He leads a choir. That means there's other people there. What do choirs do? They they sing praise to God. Okay. So Habakkuk writes a prayer that's on some kind of musical shagoinath, and it's to be given to the guy who helps God's people praise, and you're to do it with what? Stringed instruments. 
So get your head around these prayers. He has two prayers of confusion, then he has a prayer of conviction. And the prayer of conviction isn't personal and individual. It's supposed to be corporate. God's people were to gather, and they were to sing this prayer of faith together when everything around them seemed to be coming apart. Habakkuk called for this, and remember the ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit, so God Almighty called for this because He knows we as fallen sinners cannot cultivate an overcoming faith as Lone Ranger believers. There will come a day when you wobble. I don't care how much a man of faith, a woman of faith you are, there will come a day where you will wobble. So you ought to have a support of a brother or sister. That's God's plan. So you don't topple when you wobble. The wisest man who ever lived was King Solomon, the Bible says. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the wisest man who ever lived said this, two are better than one. Why? If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. In an overwhelming world, we can best cultivate an overcoming faith by availing ourselves to one of God's most precious gifts to us, the church of the living God. Leaning on one another, and really importantly, encouraging one another. Encouraging one another to run the race marked out for us. When we choose not to be part of the family of God, when we choose to make church optional, Jesus is my Savior, but I don't like His bride, we miss the formula. Or when we turn church into a place where we beat each other up instead of build each other up, we destroy the formula. That is not God's recipe for godly people to stand in a world that tries to press them down. Hebrews 3.12, you might want to write it next to Habakkuk 3. Hebrews 3.12 warns us, See to it, brother, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And so I wonder, what would be God's solution? What would be Scripture's solution to prevent my faith's dilution and soul's pollution? Well, the very next verse in context, after saying, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily. How often do you get discouraged in this world? Probably daily. How often should your brothers and sisters in Christ encourage one another? Daily. As long as it's called today. As long as we're on this side of Christ's return so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Satan wants to make you cynical and jaded as a Christian, so you will be ineffective and unproductive for Jesus. That's his plan. And many of us are playing along too well. As we get closer, I'll give you another scripture before I say what I was going to say. One more scripture is Hebrews 10.25. Hebrews 10.25, where we're commanded let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. By A.D. 70, 30, 40 years after the time of Christ, some are not thinking church is that important. But the Scriptures say, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. That's what going to church should be. And all the more 
as you see the day approaching. That as we, as we get closer to Jesus coming back, we're going to need each other more and more. In 1950, when people said things politely, <laughs> that's not how it works in 2020, is it? And maybe we could get around with you know, skipping her out on God's people. But in 2020 and forward, it's going to be a different story. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the God of nature is the God of Scripture. And the God of nature has decreed that it gets darkest before the dawn. What do you think is going to happen in this world before the light of Christ comes back? It's going to get harder to be a believer and you better lean on one another in encouragement, not chastisement. 2 Timothy 3 promises this. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. You can't make them happy. Whatever you say is wrong. And however you say it's wrong. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. They'll make stuff up if you don't even do anything wrong. They'll be without self-control. They're going to live lives that are out of control. They're going to be brutal and they're not going to love the good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having an appearance of godliness. I'm moral. I subscribe to the new. You're, you're on the wrong side of history. Having an appearance of morality, godliness. But denying its power, the one true God. So how do we spiritually thrive? When conditions are such that it's hard to even just survive. We must do what the early church did when Satan tried to smash it. Acts 2.42, write that in your Bibles. Acts 2.42, it speaks of what the early church did when Satan tried to smash it. Acts 2.42 says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Because we best cultivate an overcoming faith by devoting ourselves to prayer and praise with God's people. Friends, it's amazing what praising can do. There is power in prayer and something powerfully happens when two or three are gathered. I have watched you come to prayer meeting like your dog died and someone put something awful in your Cheerios. And I've seen you leave full of joy and hope and the only thing that changed is you took an hour to pray with one another. That's all that changed. But it all changed. And so we fix our eyes on what is not seen. You can see the problem. Turn on the news, that's their business. So we fix our eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our circumstances may overwhelm us, but our God can save us. 
so you'll have this dichotomy that Habakkuk has. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You understand what Habakkuk is saying? He knows the Babylonians are coming. And he knows the rampaging armies will strip the land clean. Those overbearing overlords will demand yearly tribute, taxing the people into the poorhouse. And they will leave the land left essentially barren. Verse 17 describes an utter catastrophe if you live in an agrarian society as they did. The six clauses of verse 17 are coming in ascending order as it pertains to their severity. The figs are the least impactful of the losses, but it culminates with the herd stalls being empty, which would be devastating in their world. Let's just review, because we live 2,600 years and more than that miles away from their world, right? So let's understand what's happening to poor Habakkuk, and he knows it. Figs were seasonal. They were optional. But the fruit of the vine, that was imbibed daily because the local water wasn't always potable and you had to take a little wine for your stomach. Olives were next. And olives were a daily staple. You always found them on the ancient Hebrew table. They were either sort of a treat to eat that acted as your meat, put some flavor with your daily bread, or they made the oil, the olive oil from which your daily bread was made. Olive oil was what you'd infuse with herbs so you could dip the daily bread or it wasn't too exciting to eat. And it's the olive oil that kept your lamps lit 18 centuries before electrification was understood. But Habakkuk isn't finished. The situation was going to get far, far worse. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive crop fail, and then the fields produce no food. That means the basic staples of society, the very essence of your ability to survive, they're going to be missing. And then, the Bible says, the flocks will be cut off from the fold. Now, I want you to remember that ancient Israelites didn't eat a lot of meat in their daily diet. Meat was sort of a special treat. It was, it was reserved for the very wealthy kings and such, but also it was at times a special festivals where you go and worship God and you bring a sacrificial animal and you would get to eat meat and it was a big treat. But the loss of those herds, while not stopping your daily eating, it stopped all your celebrating, it took away the wool that you wore, your clothes. It took away the offerings you would offer to God to turn back the hand of His anger. And so Habakkuk writes, the flocks will be cut off from the fold and there's going to be no herds in the stalls. Now, Israel was never a people of great cattle. They're not the Montana ranchers. There's no Ponderosa history on their TV. So what does it mean to say 
there'll be no herd in the stalls to a Hebrew 2,600 years ago. Their land is, is rather small in size. It's barren in many places. It's generally inconducive to large-scale beef cattle. So the reference to cattle here is probably to their oxen. And the oxen were the tractors of the ancient world. And so having no herd in the stall would be like having all the machinery of all the industry and all of society laid inoperable. It's gone. Industry shuts down. And it would be cause for great consternation as it would indicate a pending starvation for the population was unable to produce yield sufficient to feed all the mouths because all the tractors are gone. You get a sense of what's happening to Habakkuk? He has real problems, folks. But Habakkuk the prophet once pleading for God's intervention in chapter 1, a man perplexed by God's discipline in chapter 2 is now a man with an unshakable conviction in God's decisions in chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields produce no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He makes me tread on the high places. And so I want to ask you today, have you cultivated an overcoming faith? That though your entire present world were to pass away and fall away, can you rejoice in the Lord? and His proven promises of eternal redemption. Here's a question for you, Christian. Is Jesus enough? If so, I invite you to pray with me. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being an all-sufficient Savior, worthy forever. And come what may, my heart will choose to say, in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. And when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me, when the world is all that it should be, blessed be your name. On the road, marked out with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Amen. And amen. Friends, if you've been watching the news, instead of reviewing the truth, and you're sinking, grab the anchor. It holds.